four of us here in four totally different spaces, but each product is adding value in that space. Yeah. I think anybody who's listening should not be afraid to try because you have nothing to lose. You have to remember that it's your product, it's your idea, it's something that you believe in. Go out there, try it. Even if it doesn't succeed, try again because each one adds value in its own space. I'm Jim Fox, and welcome to the Loom Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live. This is the second of a two-episode series discussing the process of running your own Kickstarter project. This is a roundtable discussion with three guests who have each ran successful Kickstarter projects. If you've ever wanted to start your own Kickstarter project, we hope that these two shows will provide you some direction, tips, and lessons learned from creators who've already gone through the process. Back to the Loom Innovation Podcast. We're here with Ade, Eric, and Matt, three creators who've had successful Kickstarter projects. And we were previously talking about what it's like to run a campaign, uh, run a Kickstarter campaign during the process of that campaign actually going on. Anything more to add to that? And then we'll move on to what it's like after a campaign ends. Anything more about uh, the process during the campaign being live? Well, in terms of the delivery date, I've okay. changed from padding it. So even though I know I would like to deliver on Christmas, I push it out to February, yeah. and then I actually deliver for Christmas. Wow. Yeah, so that's, that's that, I, I agree with that concept, but there is there a potential lost customer that yes, thinks they is. won't get it by Christmas? There is. So there's a balance act there, but, yes. but in general, you're right, over, kind of under promise and over deliver, right? So absolutely. Anything more on that, Matt? Is that no, I think that, that's good. Okay, so to do, <laughs> okay, so now let's uh, let's imagine now that our campaign has ended and we're all uh, happy and we're going out and having an adult beverage because we get overfunded. Uh, what happens now? What happens after the uh, the campaign ends? Oh, well, the real world sets in. Right? Well, well, actually, before we, <laughs> before we get before we get to the fun stuff, let's let's make a, a quick bullet of what happens if you end the project and it doesn't get funded. So we talked about that a bit earlier, but let's do a real quick review. If you if the project's over and it didn't get funded, so what? So if it didn't get funded, then uh, then you try again, right? Then you have to look at uh, why did it not get funded? Uh, was it my delivery? Was it my page? Was it my product? Does something need to change? What something has to change, right? Because yeah. obviously you care enough and you're invested in this process and you you've got an idea and, and it's worth following up and saying, uh, what can I do differently, better, uh, and then and, and try again, right? So uh, if it does not get funded, uh, nobody will get charged on their credit card, and you are not obligated to fulfill your rewards. Yeah, there's absolutely no strings. Both parties can walk away and pretend it never happened, and that's that's part of the fun of Kickstarter, I guess, and actually. Also, that is one of the nice things, sorry, that, yeah. that if, if it fails, Kickstarter doesn't charge you. Yeah. So that is, uh, and also other than the the marketing that you you did on your own. So I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and, and uh, debate with you about your word choice there. Fail. I think an, even an underfunded one it can't be considered a failure because if you're intelligent about it, you learned a lot. You yeah. learned free marketing. Yeah, you learn what the market can and cannot support. 
whether that's the product or whether that's a poor business plan. Well, uh, but it's but it's underfunding. I I, I, okay. I don't I don't like to say fail, but well, um, another really good thing about that opportunity. I see it as an opportunity. Yes. If you're yeah. underfunded, it's an opportunity to actually interact with those who backed you yeah. and get their feedback yeah. on what do I need to improve to get funded. Yeah. You get the feedback from them and for anybody you interacted with during the process, and then you can get them ready because the people who funded you the first time. We'll be ready to fund you the second time. Yeah, and we mentioned that earlier with with even successful projects that usually you'll keep those around for your future projects. Okay, so now let's uh, go back to the fantasy world where our project got fully funded, and we wake up the next morning and we've got fifty thousand or two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the in the in the Kickstarter campaign, and you're fully funded, and you're like, oh crap, now what? So uh, what is that process like? Okay, well, the first thing you have to realize is Kickstarter takes ten percent, about ten percent off. Has that changed? So that used to be about 5% and then 3 to 5% for it's, credit card fees. Yes, right. Total, so it's around total, about 8% total, total, on average. Right about, let's yeah. say 8 to 10%. Yeah. Secondly, not everybody who pledged would their funds go through. That's, that's true. That's it's a very small percentage that doesn't, but it is a non-zero amount. Yeah. That's so that, that and, that, and that happens anywhere from their credit card uh, changed in the month or so since they pledged, their credit card expired or their credit card is overdrawn, or they died, or some goofy thing, right? So you're right, there's this, some non-zero amount that somehow you don't get funding. Yes. I'm always curious to hear if there's ever been a case where they were funded until one credit card didn't make it, and then they fell back below the, under, the sure funded amount. I don't know if that's ever I'm a thing. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's the weird scenario I've always wondered about. Pretty, I'm sure it's happened. Also, once your campaign is over, they pre it presents another opportunity for pre-orders. Yeah. Because those, those who were waiting for the last minute missed it, and then those who have funded you who want to order some more during the process after the campaign is over. So there's just a couple of opportunities. Yeah, and there's various tools now that are available to do that that I didn't make use of because I didn't I, know about. I did. But I made use of, it's called BackerCAD. It's probably yeah. the number one. And the reason why, it's, it's interesting, it's a learning curve, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting down in the middle of my campaign and I'm going, I want to make the survey now because I did promise the what Christmas delivery guys and I did you know I did a lot of things that all of a sudden I'm an ops guy so just like you're an engineering guy I'm, I'm kind of the ops guy I'm like looking at it going uh oh this doesn't it's coming. look good yeah this doesn't <laughs> look good <laughs> now it was great a sweet spot if I only did 5,000 but if I did 10 to 15 then I've got some problems yeah. so I'm looking through it so I'm trying to get everything pre-done so as soon as it ends I'm going to do the I'm going to send out the, the survey get them back in and I started sitting down with Kickstarter trying to do survey. Uh -huh. I was very unhappy with the process. And so, of course, what do you do when you're unhappy? You just go start, <laughs> you know, basically going and looking. And I went and looked and found uh, backer kit. Now that's another handout. You're going to get another Every five. convenience costs you money. So that's, those are third-party companies, yeah, right? Yeah, that's a third-party yeah. company. But the survey, I yeah. can put pictures with my options. You get more orders. Yeah. You get Oh yeah, I've already gotten another thousand dollars from add-ons, and so and you see all of it. It helps you with fulfillment. There's a lot of things from that back end that I said it's worth it for me. And I only have two hundred backers. If I had a thousand, two thousand, three thousand backers, it's almost necessary to have something like that. Yeah, I agree. And the posometry is a one-person show. It was it was right on the verge of being too much. So. I didn't know about those third-party things at the time, or maybe I didn't. I just chose not to. <laughs> but but any much bigger than that, I, it would have been overwhelming. So I would have had to go to something like that. Uh, before we get too uh, knee deep in all this, can someone just give a thirty-second blurb on what is a backer survey? What does that mean? So the the backer survey is the survey you send out to your backers to get information, their names, address. If you have a color choice, 
the color preference, you get to finalize what the specific pledge was for. Because, for example, if you had a pledge of $25, right? Yeah. And they had the opportunity to over-pledge for additional items, and they pledged, let's say, $100. In the survey, you can ask them, what was it $100 for? Okay, so four items. What are the colors of the four items? And they, so keep in mind is just to get all the final information before you ship it out to them. Got it. Gen the generic uh, yes. thing would be like t-shirt size or something like you were mentioning mm -hmm. earlier. Uh, so someone give a 30-second to a minute answer on how does the money work? Where, where does the money go when someone gets charged, and how do you end up getting it a few weeks later? So I you have a comment. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming, right? Yeah, it's coming. So you'll set up your bank account information. Uh, as the project owner. As the project owner. Yeah. Uh, and as soon as the campaign is successfully funded, uh, that immediately gets transferred over to your bank account. The okay. bank account you registered with. Yes. So when I did it, it took about two weeks for the money to arrive in my account. Is that now instant? Have they changed no. things? That's still, I think it, uh, that's what I've seen is two weeks. It took me about and two I'm, weeks I've to get it. I just finished mine about a week ago, and I haven't seen it yet. So but, I, but I had a, I, had, I, maybe, I don't know, maybe too much faith. I don't know. I assumed that as soon as the project was over and the credit cards were getting I just assumed, that, okay, I'm going to have money eventually. I can start spending to, to kind of prepare myself. I don't know if all companies do that. Do they wait until I definitely get money in my bank? I started spending and buying things and getting them in and kind of getting the ball rolling. Uh, but it generally takes about two weeks for the money to actually arrive because it takes time for Amazon, or not Amazon, but uh, Kickstarter to go out and actually charge the credit cards. And then if a credit card gets turned down, they charge it again. I think they try three times yes, and then they figure out that, okay, this guy's well, off it, the planet. It, it all depends on your process as far as when you yeah. start spending the money. So for us, we're trying to deliver before. So once we get the funded and we're sure that we're, we have enough you of a buffer, you started going, then yeah. we start to place the orders. Okay. But that's risky as well, mm -hmm. because what if things reverse, then you, you know what I mean? So it, this, it, that, that's another risk that you have to be comfortable with doing. Got it. Okay, and you guys already mentioned another bullet uh, thing here. It's a third-party fulfillment companies. Um, did we cover that enough? It's a 30-second blurb of exactly what a, a third-party... Well, well, as far as that, you have two options. Um, you go through them, but if you're good with spreadsheets... That's something else you can do because one, one way that we've done in the past is we've gone to websites like Fiverr.com. Mm -hmm. You have people who specialize in spreadsheets, but that means you have to be comfortable giving them access to the information. Yeah. So that's something else. So we hired somebody on Fiverr to do our spreadsheets to create a spreadsheet where people could order after the fact and then she put them together at the end of the day. I've still got my notebook of when I, um, I kept a spreadsheet and a, and a uh, or a, a notebook and every page in it was my backer level and who, the name, the address, the backer amount. And then I checked off. If it took a pen and checked off, yep, that one's in the mail today. Check this one's in the mail today. And even a year later, some Kickstarter dude logged into his email, uh, Kickstarter account a year later for the first time in a year. And he says, hey, I never got my reward. And it's like, well, yeah, you didn't reply to the survey. But I still had the paperwork from a year earlier that says, yes, I, I didn't hear from him. So I think it's important that you keep some kind of record, whether that's on paper or you have a third party. You have to because not everybody's going to be diligent about filling out the survey. Yeah. You get a survey two years later saying, hey, I just filled out the survey. Where's my product? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you got to definitely keep track of that. Did you have any horror stories on your stuff with your project being so big and well-funded? Any weird things on that? You know, it's interesting. Uh, the project was well-funded, uh, but we had a, a low number of backers comparatively speaking because we had a high value uh, reward sure. level so yeah. uh, while we sold about 76 of these uh, printers uh, and then we had the lower backer levels um, yeah we had several hundred backers uh, so the same kind of tools apply for us it's not like we had thousands and thousands of backers and in fact uh, when your campaign gets so big uh, that's one of the worst things that I've seen is that it's it's too big right yeah. and you have too much success 
and then you're trying to figure out how do I fulfill this? That's how what do printer bar so was. Yeah, so the game changes, that. right? So uh, I would say try to keep it reasonable as far as your uh, campaign size, the number of backers, the reward levels, uh, to know that you can manage it after it's done. Uh, some people will say, oh man, I did 200% or 300% of my goal. Um, and, and that can be very tricky because it can kind of sink you in the end. So if, if you become too big, it can be too much of an animal to handle, uh, and it really changes as the scale I tried changes. to protect it against that a little bit because I was aware, aware of the printer bot story we talked about earlier. So some on, on all backer levels, as in a project author, you can say that I want to limit this to 50 backers or 20 or 3 or whatever the number is. So you can do some version of protection of becoming a $50 million project when you're working in your mom's basement. And in right? fact, that's so what we did on our second campaign for uh, Open Gigabyte or Open GB is that we had a very limited number of machines. And in this case, it was about 12 machines that we were going to make. And we took advantage of Kickstarter and the platform not only for crowdsourcing the funding, but we said we want to keep this small and we actually want to crowdsource the R&D effort, right? Okay. So we built this 3D printer. It was an advanced version of Gigabot and we were going to sell it to people and we made it very clear and very upfront in our campaign mm -hmm. that we want people to back if they want to be part of the process of building the product, wow. right? That's so we got uh, a great team of backers who were engineers and uh, electricians and oh, just like really technical cool. skilled okay. people as well as artists. Uh, to come in and say, okay, this is what we want the machine to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And we would hold weekly hangouts uh, after we successfully funded uh, the campaign. And while we were developing and finalizing the product, uh, we would have weekly hangouts where people would contribute, and they'd take a piece of it home, they'd figure out how to do it, they'd do some work, bring it back. And so they were a part of building the product so as well. So it was a bit of a unique campaign. So you got somewhat uh, free labor. In fact, you they paid for the labor, but also they got ownership of the product. Absolutely. Yes. And it was That's exactly really what they were hoping to get. That's very cool. That's, good. That's definitely good. Uh, let's see, what other uh, things? Oh, pro uh, project updates coming after the thing. That's I think that's as important or maybe more so than doing it during the campaign is make sure you're doing pro project updates after you're funded. Uh, maybe you can say, hey, the, the blue widgets came in uh, this week, but the red widgets are delayed and they won't be in for another three weeks or whatever, right? So keep doing those updates. Uh, any inputs on, on that or horror stories or weird stories? I plan on doing once a week. Is really, I thought that was kind of a good rule of I think it's important to set the right expectation. Yeah. So, so, yeah. What, so what we typically do is once we're funded, we send out an update saying, hey, we're funded, this is what it is, here are the next steps. Yeah. And this is how we're going to update it. And we have a graphic that shows um, from start to finish, so we called it um, SavvyCon, like, you know, like DEF CON 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So as we get to each stage, we shade it off. So, when we, and we, so you don't have to read the whole update to know where we are. We're at SavvyCon 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and that lets you know. So but we've we've covered a lot on kind of the our our end of the administrative kind of stuff, but we haven't yet once mentioned actually making the product, <laughs> which seems to be kind of important in the process. How do we go about either finding our manufacturing partners or shipping it out to be manufactured in China or whatever the case may be? Talk about that a bit of the process of once you're funded, how do I go about getting the products in hand and in the hands of the customers? And and that's really different for every product. Uh, yeah. So for Re3D, um, we did not intend to become a 3D printer manufacturer and it actually happened by accident, right? <laughs> so we had we had a small Kickstarter goal of uh, $40,000 and uh, we actually had that goal because we wanted to match funding from a startup incubator program that we were in. And so we put Gigabot's prototype up, launched our Kickstarter campaign. I thought, 
well, if we build, you know, five or six of these machines on the garage over a couple of Red Bulls, uh, everything would be great, right? And then all of a sudden, in the first 28 hours, we hit our funding goal. And then the next 24 hours, we doubled it. And then it just kept going, and we're like, oh, we weren't prepared for this, right? So were, were you actually more, uh, like, like, really excited, or were you like, oh, my God, what did we get ourselves into? It was, it was super, super exciting. So okay. it, was, yeah, it was a time that, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll refresh, always refresh, remember, refresh. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like, when can I quit my job, right? <laughs> so when it gets to that level, it, it's, it is a huge responsibility. Um, so for us, building the product was going from we did not intend to do this, uh, in such a large scale. Uh, I had a small machine shop in my garage that was my kind of my man cave and that's my background in manufacturing so I knew we could build a certain number of machines you this way. But then when it started to get to 20 and 50 and 70, you know, so now we're like, this is full production. And we went from being a little garage based operation to, okay, now we have to go rent space, we have to hire employees, we have supply chain management, we've got all of these other uh, operations that fall into a hardware or a manufacturing type company and we had to grow up very quickly and uh, we had to uh, figure out how we're going to build this product and how are you going to do quality control and how are you going to do you know so there's so many things that are important in building a physical product that we had to learn in a very short period of time so we had seven or eight months uh, to start uh, figuring out our processes and, and getting our parts and getting things built and start to... And much of that homework has to be done even before launch and definitely during the process so that you're not kind of stuck with all that at the end. Hopefully you had some plan of how to manufacture something prior sure. to launch. No, I think the first yeah. day uh, set the tone for the, yeah. <laughs> the, the next seven months. But yeah, so for like in the case of piezometry, I had a, um, I originally envisioned buying a laser cutter myself um, and then it, it kind of morphed into uh, using a company uh, downtown Houston so, so the lady down there, Kim, she cut about 2,000 of the puzzles, and then now I'm making them somewhere else. But yeah, having having those various plans of where do you make these things. So with your products, I'm sure you had you know, injection molding companies or something lined up, well, right? Um, my experience was very was very different. Um, he actually he has makes his hair. I make uh, mine in Asia. Okay. So the problem I had was I was when I was trying to get a prototype done, I went to several machine shops. Got try to get a one-off done, and you know how difficult that is because yes. we're in an oil-based area, and everybody basically can't do it. So I couldn't find anyone to make a prototype for me. So I started searching online, talking to other people who had done similar projects, and I got a link to a manufacturer in China and signed up with Skype. Sent him three hundred dollars, and within two weeks, my prototype was here. Wow, that's pretty good. Um, that was that was mind-blowing. Somebody I've never met. I'd gone to actual physical machine shops in Houston, couldn't get it done, or I was going to be charged twenty five hundred dollars or something right. like that. Yeah. And I didn't know I was going to take it further. And somebody sitting in an office in China, talking to on Skype, sent through PayPal three hundred bucks. Two weeks later, by FedEx, when it appeared at the door, my wife and I were like, "Oh, that's kind of neat." We were, we were prodding the box with a stick. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> you know, is, like, is that really what we think it is? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so all, all us after that, we've built, we've gone through good guys, bad guys, as you will in the process, to to where we are right now. Okay. So it's a different experience from yours, but each each product is different. Let's break out of the program here for a few seconds to give a shout out to our sponsor, Puzzometry, the hardest puzzle you'll never solve. If you love working on challenging, unique, and beautiful mechanical puzzles, then you've just got to try Puzzometry. P 
P-U-Z-Z-O-M-E-T-R-Y, Puzzometry.com. They have three different puzzles to choose from, and all are for sale at Puzzometry.com. Check it out. You'll be glad that you did. Puzzometry can also be found on Twitter and Facebook. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Loom Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation. Before we get back to the program, I want to let you know that you can find all of the episodes of the Loom Innovation Podcast on our webpage, lumenovation.com. That's L-U-M innovation.com, lumenovation.com. We are also on iTunes as well as soundcloud.com. talking about you making a prototype and having it shipped from China and go ahead you were about to uh, Eric you had a question related uh, to that I, I was just asking him about well for $300 you what kind of information did you need to send them okay, so to, to actually get a prototype was it working was it just okay so I had I had no experience with 3d files or CAD or anything like that okay. no no that, right. that was not my my wheelhouse so I had gone online to Elance I'd been. I'd actually met another person in Houston who could do it for me. Wanted to charge me six thousand dollars. Right. So, which was not in my budget at the time. So I'd gone to freelance at the time. I went to Elance and I found them that you know I posted a job, and I got someone from Serbia to okay. do the to put it to put my thoughts to three D for me for um, one hundred and twenty dollars. Wow. So I got the files for him, sent it to the guy in Asia, and he, he sent me that. So all of that is perfectly in the spirit of what Kickstarter is about, is just collaborating and finding different skill sets and putting it all together in your it project. Was, it was literally amazing how you could yeah. just sit in your office and talk to somebody on Skype. Yeah, there's a, there's a whole show to be had just on that process. It is an amazing process that, that I, I actually need to learn more about, so maybe the way I learned that yeah, the, is to do a show with it. The, the freelancing but, world has exploded because yeah, you have Fiverr, you have Elance, you have, there's a plethora of them. Where but you there's also so them. many tools. I mean, anyone yes. can download a CAD drawing. You know, so many Google tools. SketchUp works just fine, right? So it, all these things are so available now. But how, do, how about you, uh, Eric? You, so you make all your products yourself in your own shop, right? Yes. So your your uh, way of doing this is much different than uh, Ade's like and mine. Except yeah, so you mine do it wasn't yourself. successful. <laughs> well, it was. So, so it, I know I'm going to make was. it within two to three months, and then I'll be done. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you're more successful. <laughs> but you're sitting in your garage cutting these things out with a with a piece of equipment that you bought prior to the uh, Kickstarter, right? Yeah, I actually was. I put the cart before the horse, and so <laughs> I actually went out because I have credit. Don't have money, but mm-hmm. I have credit. Mm-hmm. So I went out and bought a bunch of machines. And I'd never done woodworking before, which people were, you know, like, how do you make this quality product? Well, you just, it's called uh, having very low tolerance and, and attention to detail and a high level of wanting quality. So, you know, basically I w- was making them. And so I was making the prototypes and I was making everything and then handing it out to a, uh, 10 to 12 people. And they were coming back with, you know, basically my crowd, you know, they're like, oh, well, we like this or we don't like this. And as I'm playing with it and they're playing with it, I'm watching how they're using it. Yeah. And so that helped a lot. And so finally through all my prototypes, I got to one point and I remember handing it to people and going, this will work on Kickstarter. Meaning I have a finalized product because before that you're like, I'm not showing this to anybody other than my friends, you know. And there's a certain point where you kind of go, boom. 
hey, I made this, I can make more of these. But again, just like you were, Matt was only going to do, you know, maybe seven or ten units, and that's, I knew probably what I, my unit thing was. So you had that eureka moment like I described in our right. coffee shop with the, with the prototypes, is yes. that someone's, someone connected to the product said, this is the thing I would buy. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a lot that. to be said for you, for, the, for you guys actually making it yourselves in your garage. Actually, I think that's the spirit, that's the essence of why Kickstarter was created. Yeah. Those yeah. who are making these products in their garages and actually getting it forward. At some point in time, it will scale, but just that sheer essence of doing it yourself and actually seeing it, I think that's wonderful. Well, I think we've, we've all got our own versions of success that are, in, in some ways, they're all very successful, but, but in I think in my mind, Matt's story with 3 3D, where they actually now have a legitimate storefront. Right. So where they you, you go from no product, and I know you kind of, you described that you kind of invented these things accidentally, <laughs> but but you go you went from no product to a Kickstarter, you raised a bunch of money, and now I have a storefront. People yes. can walk into my store. We're here right now in, in their in their headquarters. So you you that's kind of the spirit of what Kickstarter is, is trying to start businesses where otherwise there maybe wouldn't be one. Mm -hmm. So that's that's definitely a good thing. But the, the thing you have to also remember is each person's result is different. Because you know, what might work a couple of times here might take ten times here. And I, and I think we were very fortunate for those reasons, and um, there's a certain amount of luck involved, right? So we were lucky to launch at a live event, and we were lucky to uh, have a product in 2013 that was so much different than yeah. uh, anything else on the market, right? right? And that was the year of 3D printing at South by Southwest. So there was a huge timing luck as far as where the technology was and where people were ready to purchase, uh, and we were very fortunate that way. So um, it's it's luck and planning, they both go together. And you also had a, a good strong team of, I mean, impressive resumes. All, all of you guys were from a NASA background and come in with a, a, a dedicated group of people that are smart and intelligent and capable of taking on the technical challenge. So all those things were- And we haven't gotten very far because we're on the back, you know, across the street is the NASA Johnson Space Center. Right. So <laughs> we've only gotten across the street yeah, as far as we too got. far from the tree. It's still so, the same distance to walk. <laughs> so we've covered a lot of things here about Kickstarter. Um, and perhaps too much, uh, but but let's go real quick into some of the pitfalls and pro tips. So, what are the, some of the things that you you did on your first project or your second project that it's like, man, I wish I'd have done that differently. So, what are the, some of those things that now you've learned how to do? And Eric, maybe this is a time for you could kind of tune in to see what, or maybe you've you've already been around enough to learn what you could have done differently. Have any well, actually, thoughts I was on that? Ready to get my pencil and piece of paper out. No, um, uh, hey, the the one thing, and we all talked about it, was delivery time. Yeah. Um, I was overly optimistic, even though I'm going to make it, whether it takes me 17 hours and, you know, my neighbors complain about the CNC machine running at 2 o'clock in the morning, yeah. I'm going to get it done because that's who I am. So but in general, whatever I thought, at least double it. So, And I actually bought a second machine to double my productivity, okay. and I'm still going to be on the edge of getting it done like this Wow, so I was, yeah, I'm losing productivity time doing this, but I think this is important. Okay, so planning, planning and scheduling is a big thing. We've already yes. kind of beat to death the idea about postage. Postage can, postage can beat you up if you don't plan mm -hmm. for it. And do you guys have any kind of tips of things to avoid or, or what you've lessened learned? Yeah, we, we made plenty of mistakes throughout the whole <laughs> process, uh, and, I, and I talked about a few of them. One more small one, um, maybe not so small. Uh, on the very front page of our Kickstarter campaign, uh, one of the, the really first large format pieces I printed was a really cool uh, vase. It was kind of a gear-shaped vase. And it was, at the time, probably one of the largest 3D printed things at home 
uh, and, and we still have the base. The problem was that we didn't credit the creator of the base oh. as we showed this prominently on the front of our Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> so we, we learned a lot of lessons all the way from uh, making sure we give attribution to the, the people for their work, their hard work. That's uh, a common thing for music on videos. It. That's a common mistake. On and, and music in the videos yeah. as well. Yeah. We, fortunately, we had uh, our own music, um, and, and but um, we have to. You have to pay attention to the details and, and make sure that you, when you build that website, uh, build that Kickstarter page, that uh, what goes in it is a very intentional. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Um, so we've talked about uh, tons of things here. I'm going to go down my list of things to cover. Um, Oh, never often award, uh, never offer a reward unless you know the cost. I've seen that happen before. They say, well, we'll promise the moon and you have no idea what the moon costs, and now all of a sudden you're broke because of that one backer level. Any horror stories on that? Can, that, can I say one thing about uh, yeah. lessons? Like, one lesson I learned was when I went into it, I thought I was a one-man army. I figured I could do everything myself, did not need anybody help from anywhere, people reaching out to help you, and i like, I don't need your help, I can do it. The first thing you have to realize is you're not an island. You have to know, right. not be afraid to ask for help because you never know what help will be offered to you without asking. You don't get anything without asking. Always reach out to people, family, friends, ask a find out who can do what, who can help with this or that, and always accept the help. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wish I would have uh, done that more. I was pretty much a one-man show for mine, and I made all the deadlines and I delivered uh, on time, but it was killer. It was a lot of hours. Um, Let's uh, shift gears here to a kind of a category on my notes. I didn't really know what to call it, so I just called it Kickstarter Strategies. Um, I'm going to throw a question out, see what you guys think. Is, is there a viable strategy to set up a Kickstarter project with the intent that it probably will not get funded, and that being your primary intent? Can anyone think of a reason why that might be an advantage? So to, to set up a project that you almost certainly are sure will not get funded. I would, I would say what Matthew did, and I've never heard it before before now, I think that was an excellent way you did it. I'm prototyping this, so you may not fund or not, but you're going to be part of the R&D to make the final product. So, more for, from you, but that's almost the same thing. It's like, I'm not really making it for the final product. I'm doing a Kickstarter to get to the final product. So that, that reminds right. me of the movie I mentioned earlier, Loving Vincent, uh, the Vincent Van Gogh movie that we saw a couple weeks ago. Started on Kickstarter, but what was weird about their Kickstarter project, it was not to make a movie. It was to make uh, a rig for the painters. That, that movie, every single frame of it is painted, hand-painted with the 180,000 paintings in that movie. And, and so it's frame after frame. So the Kickstarter in 2014 was actually to fund the making and manufacturing and inventing of the painter's rig, where they would have painters sit down at a more or less a cubicle thing, and they had cameras overhead. And so the funding was to just let us make this rig thing that we're going to make 100 copies of and hire 100 painters to come paint all day forever. And so three years later, they actually made the movie, but the project itself wasn't actually a movie, but uh, totally off topic, but a really interesting thing there. Well, you know, it, it also depends uh, on, on what your end goal is, what your end strategy is, because yeah. there are two classes of people. There are folks who go on Kickstarter trying to actually start a business. This, this, is the, this, this is the footstep in the door I need to get going and actually get this to, to where you are at right now, to the business. And there are hobbyists who go, you know what, I really like this piece, and I want to make 100 pieces of that, and I'm done. Yeah, absolutely. They can be very, very narrow-focused projects that are successful. The reason I ask about the weird question of would you set up a project to intentionally not get it funded because I think in retrospect that's what I learned with Bosometry. So I had two projects. Uh, the, the first one, 
I had, uh, I wrote down the numbers here. My first piezometry project was set up for 45 days, and I had a $12,000 goal. I thought I had to go buy a laser cutter to make these happen. I ended up with 108 backers and only $2,400 in funding. I almost immediately relaunched. Within a few days, I relaunched. And my second project was only 11 days long and had a, had a $100 goal, way smaller goal. I ended up with 592 backers and $21,000 in funding. Wow. So what I learned from that, I think, is that, that once my first project went underfunded, I knew I had a couple hundred backers that liked what I was doing. And so when I relaunched, I, I emailed them, I, I put them on, on Twitter, I put on Facebook, I said, hey guys, you like what I'm doing. I'm relaunching with a much smaller goal. Here's why it's different. Here's why I can go smaller. Because by then, I'd found the laser shop in downtown Houston that told me that they could make either 100 of them or 2,000 of them, and they didn't care which. So I didn't need a huge funding goal. And so I had a couple hundred backers that liked me. And I said, hey, I'm going to relaunch in five hours. It's going to go live in four hours. An hour is going to go live. At 5 o'clock, you better get the go button. So within 45 minutes, I was fully funded. And, and so I made it a much shorter deal with only 11 days instead of 45 days. So like you mentioned an hour or so ago that it gets kind of boring in the middle. You get an exciting start and exciting end, but in the middle is, is kind of slow. Well, I cut out the middle. All I have is a beginning and an end with only 11-day <laughs> project. Mm -hmm. And it was almost a straight-up slope. It was a 45-degree straight-up slope the whole way. So that's, I think if I were to do another Kickstarter project, I may do that on purpose to get one that's maybe a little too ambitious so it doesn't, so it doesn't get funded. But you know what? You're going to get a few hundred backers that like you. And then when you relaunch, you can get that early momentum that will allow you to become a Kickstarter, uh, what do they call it, a featured pick. Yep. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a featured pick. was it? A staff pick. And so I got to be a staff pick on my second one by the Whoa. third day. And... But that was because I got the early momentum of the previous project. And that happened also with the, the Coolest Cooler project. Have you guys heard about the Coolest yes. Cooler? So they, were, they, were, they launched the first time and it was not successful. Or they relaunched a few months later and they were gangbusters. Or they're one of the top three or four projects yeah. ever. And I think it's the same thing, is that they were tapping into the people that liked them before and says, hey, come and, come and back me at first. And then you get early momentum. We, 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 we had a similar project called the Arc Doc which the first time we launched it, we were about two weeks into it, and it wasn't going so well. So we came back with a spin. We reduced the pricing and we said, hey, we found a way to make it for less. Okay. So that was our way to get, it, to get out of the first one and to launch the second one. So when we launched the second one, the first people who were ready, we were, actually we were funded the first time, we found a way to make it less. And we came back and then, those people who funded us merely within the first 24 hours, it just went. It goes, yeah. It Once you get that early momentum, it hits all the algorithms on the Kickstarter website. I don't know if I'll intentionally those, do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But those algorithms know. become important. If you can get smart that's about true. how the website algorithms and the search returns work, that's definitely a huge thing. Um, let's see. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask Matt with 3.3D, because you guys have got funding from venture capitalists and other such investors we, over we, the years. We have not, actually. We're no, a bootstrapped no company. Okay. Yeah. So I was gonna, maybe maybe you know anyway. Um, how how can Kickstarter funding work hand in hand? You mentioned that you got some matching funds. So talk about how can Kickstarter work with all the other more traditional ways of fundraising and building businesses. Yeah. So the uh, actually the incubator that we started with, uh, Startup Chile program, is a non dilutive incubator uh, out of Santiago, Chile, out of Chile, okay. and it's actually a government run uh, incubation program. And we applied to that and got accepted uh, in 20, for the 2013 uh, cohort. And that program gave us $40,000 non-dilutive. So okay. uh, we had the stipulation that you had to live in country for seven months to take part in the program, that incubation program. And that's how we got started. So that's the 40000 that we wanted to match with Kickstarter. So beyond that, um, we found it very uh, helpful 
uh, to be in these incubation programs. So we're actually currently in incubation program in uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Parallel 18 program, and it's structured much the same way. Uh, in fact, um, almost exactly the same. Uh, so it has also a $40,000. You go in country, and that's why we have an outpost in Puerto Rico now. Uh, my co-founder is there uh, right at the moment, and hello, uh, Samantha. Yes, <laughs> and, and so uh, we're going through the program there. We get mentorship, we get uh, access to uh, decision makers in the markets. Okay. Uh, we uh, get the opportunity to be with other uh, entrepreneurs, which is such an invigorating environment. And it's great to be among other people working day and night and, and 14 hour days, seven days a week. Uh, so those are the resources that we really relied on in order to continue growing the company. Okay, very good. Uh, so venture capitalists are, are kind of a, a more traditional way to do fundraising. The advantage, I think, on Kickstarter versus those routes is that, like you mentioned, non-dilutive, but, but venture capitalists typically want to take a stake, stake in your company. Kickstarter, is, there's none of that. It's you keep 100% ownership of your business. Uh, so that's definitely a, a good thing. Well, but the, the other thing you have to remember is when you do get on Kickstarter and you whether you're successful or not, you attract that attention. Yeah. And you attract the attention of the big box stores. You could be, if Walmart or Target or Best Buy happens to like your product, you get into Best Buy. Yeah. And because if you go through those stores and you find a lot of products that actually started on Kickstarter or Indiegogo or wherever have you. Yeah, and the, the game Exploding Kittens is, is one of one of many of those examples, but definitely. is uh, So here's a, I guess we're getting kind of toward the end of our time here, but a generic question. I, I, in my perception, and I'll admit I've not been on Kickstarter much in the last year, but are we in a period where Kickstarter is shrinking, or is it growing, or is it staying about level? I, I have to say that I, I've seen less of Kickstarter in the last year as yourself, but I've yeah. seen a lot of changes with the platform um, over the past five years, and uh, we know we've seen a lot of changes, and I think that uh, the platform and the idea, it has sustainability to it. So whether it's Kickstarter or Indiegogo or any of the other crowdfunding platforms throughout the world, uh, the idea is right, and it's just an execution of it, right? So we expect things to change and to morph. Nothing's ever going to stay the same, so there may be new rules or new ways of uh, doing business or new ways of operating the platform, uh, but they're, I think they're doing that to maintain themselves in the future. So uh, we will see changes in Kickstarter, and we have seen changes, but uh, the idea of being able to crowdsource uh, is important. And, and in fact, with uh, legislation opening up to allow you to crowdsource the actual investment in your company, not just the product, right? Not just being able to sell your product, but you can actually sell a percentage of your company through these crowdsourcing platforms. Nice. So, I hadn't heard of uh, that. Yeah. So there's, the idea of crowdsourcing is powerful and it's like social media and it's not going away. Very cool. Uh, Adolfo, you have any questions? We've got a visitor here just kind of listening in, but uh, any questions? No questions, no questions. He's, uh, he admitted during one of our breaks that he's learning a lot, so he's, he's in absorb mode and perhaps he'll have questions in the coming days. Um, let's uh, wrap up here by going around the table and telling you. Well, go ahead, one I more have, thing, Eric. I have one question. Okay. Um, have y'all done Indiegogo and some of the others? Because I've only done, I've only did Kickstarter and, and I saw on Fiverr, you know, some people were like, okay, you go here and then after this you go here and after this you go here. I was wondering if anybody well, tried that. Well, the, the main difference, in my opinion, is Kickstarter is more regulated than Indiegogo. In Indiegogo, you don't have to have a proof of concept. 
And because of how regulated Kickstarter is, you don't get a lot of people getting onto Kickstarter. But also there's no obligated rewards on those other sites, right? Exactly. But the, yeah. the, the main thing, the one thing that we, we forgot to mention is the submission process on Kickstarter. You still have to submit your project yeah. and have it go through their review to make sure it meets their standards. Yes. Because our first one was denied. We had to go back and revamp it. So, but with Indigo with this, it's less strict. So you find a lot more projects that help me fund my iPhone, help me get this, which are things you would not find on, on Kickstarter uh, at all. Yeah, yeah, I didn't know enough about yeah, some you of the others. Now, these, these days you have a lot of people getting the funding on Kickstarter and then taking that momentum and going, going to Indigo, because Indigo has an in-demand program, I think that's what it's called, allows you to keep on getting pledges indefinitely. Some of the things that are not allowed on uh, Kickstarter, and this, I, I'll admit this list is a, a year or so old, but uh, prohibited items include weapons, you know, that you can't sell guns or gun-like things, gimmicks, uh, miracle cure-alls, you know, medicine kind of things. Information uh, and, Yeah, and then resell items. So I know that there's been a few instances where Kickstarter projects were shut down because they would drop ship a million items from China and then resell them as though they, they were their yes. new invented items. So those things get policed. Uh, so there are a few things that are prohibited, but generally it just it's open field for, for random creativity of different different things. Uh, any anything more to to go? On I, I would this? just say, um, you know, the focus is uh, just as a final thought. Um, as we think about Kickstarter and all of these things that we talked about today, how do you set it up? How do you run it? Uh, throughout this whole process, the most powerful thing is to continually focus on the customer. Yeah. So. Think about in, in every step of the process, you know, whether it's quality or communication or how to, it's always think about, uh, because that in customer is, is, is not just a customer, they really are like a micro investor. Because if you're doing this to start a company, start a new venture, they're investing in you, right? And they're taking a let leap of faith. So be focused on the customer throughout the whole process and, and I think you're gonna find success. Uh, we are recording this program on November 25th, Saturday, and uh, we don't post these live. I'm going to try to get it posted tomorrow or Monday, so it'll be posted in the next few days. Uh, you've still got a little bit of time on your project, right? Or yeah, Eric, yours is already done. Yours He's is just got. Uh, I've got five days left. So let's give a shout out to uh, if if anyone <laughs> can listen to this uh, once I get it posted before your project ends. Mm -hmm. How do they find you? It's www.savvydesigns.com. Spell that. S A R V I. D E S I G N S dot com. And if you go on Kickstarter, it's Savvy Doc, S A R V I D O C K. Yeah, okay. And then, uh, so you've got a Kickstarter project coming up soon. Uh, can you give a shout out to what you've got uh, starting here in another month or so? Yeah, so stay tuned. Uh, we're looking at the January timeframe. Uh, we've okay. got a new technology that we're releasing uh, for industrial 3D printing uh, that we took the traditional print head off of our machine threw it away, we took the filament that you commonly find on 3D printers, the little spool of thread, we th threw away the filament and we said, how come we can't just take plastic pellets, uh, these pellets that are an order of magnitude cheaper and available in more different types of materials, and pour those into a little funnel and just print directly from wow. a pellet, right? Cool. So we're super, super excited to be releasing our pellet extruder uh, in Q1, uh, so in a couple months. And uh, we really see the application in many different places, not only to lower the cost and open up the availability of 3D printing on a large scale. So you know, think about two foot, three foot cubed. Uh, so what would, what would you make if you had a 3D printer like three foot cubed and you could do it for less money? And so we, we're looking forward to opening up those new and, and high growth markets. And we really see it as just the first step 
to being able to recycle materials. So previously your projects have funded about $50,000 and then about $250,000. Do you have any mm -hmm. guess what this one, the target is uh, for the I can't new one? say yet. Can't say <laughs> yet. Okay, that's fair. I understand can't you got to protect yet. your business yes. plan. But, uh, so sense. yeah, so we, we think that, uh, and in fact we're, we're running recycled material on it right now. Uh, so what does that look like then when you can, instead of taking your recycling out to the curb, maybe you're just going to grind that up and pour it into your 3D printer and make something useful for yourself. He says they're making one uh, these things right now and testing them, and, and we are surrounded uh, in a shop with, I see, what, four or five, six 3D printers going on right here in front of me and another one in the room next door. So, And these are large 3D printers, not what you might see at the... Uh, you know, wherever Amazon or whatever, where they're new, normally like two or three foot. <laughs> yeah, so the normal print volume for most 3D printers is maybe 10 inches cube or 8 inches cube. But these are, they're the size of a refrigerator maybe. Uh, they're, they're large 3D printers uh, really doing cool big things. Can I just add uh, a final yeah. thought, if, if you don't mind? You know, with four of us here in four totally different spaces, but each product is adding value in that space. Yeah. I think anybody who's listening should not be afraid to try because you have nothing to lose. You have to remember that it's your product, it's your idea, it's something that you believe in. Go out there, try it. Even if it doesn't succeed, try again. Because each one adds value in its own space. Very good. And I'm going to use that exact phrase as the poll quote that's going to start the podcast. <laughs> nice. That's very good. Eric, can you give a shout out to how folks can get in touch with you and buy your product? But yeah, um, because I did Backer Kit, um, it actually is a store okay. that will allow you to sell indefinitely. So uh, until February when I raise prices, um, it's going to be Kickstarter prices, and you just uh, go to Backer Kit and type in Gnomeworks, G-N-O-M-E-W-O-R-K-S. And that's and all one word, no space, right? That's right. All, wor uh, yeah. all one word, no space, and you'll be able to find it. Or you can go to Facebook, type in Gnomeworks again, and you'll see my little page, and you can click on button that'll send you to the website. Yeah, doing a little research for this program, just type in Gnomeworks into Google finds a lot of your stuff as well, so so that works too. Uh, do you have a Twitter or any other social media contacts? I'm 50, I don't have Twitter. <laughs> I understand, okay. Uh, I put my foot down, you know, I was like, okay, I guess I'll get a Facebook page, I guess I'll get it, and I was like, no, I'm not getting Twitter. I don't know, there's a famous 70-some-year-old who's got a Twitter account, but... Uh, yeah. We don't need to mention that. No. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> any, any other uh, way to get in touch with you? Have you covered all of your social media contacts? And yeah, absolutely. So on social media, on, on Twitter and Instagram, it's Re3D Printing. Uh, okay. You can find us on the web at uh, re3d.org. So that's R-E, the number three, and the letter D.org, O-R-G. And uh, yeah, so drop us a line. We're happy to chat and love to, love to see you in the shop and give you a tour. Very cool. And uh, Adolfo, say really loud, what is your favorite high school robotics team? The Blargolfish. Blargolfish, Team 1255 from Baytown, Texas. Very cool. Thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Give a shout-out to Kickstarter and go to the website and uh, check it out and go back something, and then go start a project. See you next time, guys. Thanks. Thank you. I'm Jim Fox, and thank you for listening to the Loom Innovation Podcast, where we shine a light on innovation, creativity, entrepreneurship, and the creative people who make our world a better and more interesting place to live.
Hey guys, thanks for listening. We're going to try something new here. Remember back in the day when we listened to our music on CDs and some CDs had hidden tracks on them? Well, we're going to try an experiment. Let's consider this little segment a hidden track. And I just asked AJ to pick a state, any state, and he picked Iowa. So if you're in Iowa, shoot me an email at pazometry at gmail.com. That's P-U-Z-Z-O-M-E-T-R-Y at gmail.com. Include the names of the three guests we had on this show, and I'll put a free puzzle in the mail to you. Thanks for listening. Bye.